Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Betty's.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S dot com. Welcome to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, I did a uh, cable TV hit the other day. Chris Hayes, MSNBC. Welcome to my world, Tommy. It was yeah. fun. I, yeah. like, I really like Chris. I like his show a lot. Yeah. He's very smart and they cover foreign policy. But um, he reminded me how uh, in the before times, before Trump, when there was a crisis in the world and a presidential campaign was happening, advisors to the campaign would do conference calls and put out policy And papers. the advisors were like policy people and not like magalunatics. It would, no, yeah, it would be like yeah. Dennis McDonough who yeah. was a campaign advisor, yeah. became White House chief of staff. Susan Rice was the yeah. campaign advisor, became the national security advisor. And then with the Trump team, they just <laughs> no comment on everything <laughs> yeah, in the world. Yeah. Well, you know, nice work. If it was you a nice it. trip down memory lane of, of us uh, in the 2008 campaign having to react to uh, Putin invading the country of Georgia. Yeah, I, I remember that. Everybody forgets that they invaded Georgia in 2008, but... Uh, and Bush did nothing, actually. Um, Bush did nothing. And McCain nothing. was like, why yeah. are we not there for Saakashvili? And and then um, Chris was what? Na- a nation reporter. Mm-hmm. Every, you know. Um, is it the nation? Yeah. yeah. That was a long time ago. Long time we ago. children, young people. The before times. It was a better time, though, when candidates had to, you know. a simpler time. Say what they would do and how yeah, they would yeah, lead yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah. Seems like a, a better idea. Anyway, uh, we're going to do exactly that today. We're going to cover the U.S. airstrikes on militia groups supported by Iran, the latest from Gaza, and the dramatic shift against the Israeli war effort in the United States. We're also going to talk about the fate of Biden's foreign policy agenda and how it's tied up in the U.S. Senate and with immigration reform. We will also cover some uh, a big shakeup in the Ukrainian government. Tucker Carlson took a little sojourn to Russia. Good for him. Hope he's trying some yeah, it's a good weather this caviar time. Caviar or yeah. something. I don't yeah. know. What do you do over there? Uh, we're also going to talk about elections, the future of democracy in El Salvador, Europe, Pakistan, and Senegal, and then a little on Northern Ireland and some uh, sad news about King Charles. And finally, a little segment called British Conservatives Are Weird. <laughs> well, that's been kind of a standing segment on the show, but yeah. uh, we can brand it now. That's true. That's very true. This is non-Boris Johnson. And then you're going to hear my interview with Politico's Alex Ward about his new book, The Internationalists which covers President Biden's foreign policy over the first two years of his administration. So stick around for that. First year, Biden book. Year, year three is quite the sequel. Uh, yeah, things, yeah. it's a big shakeup. Yeah. What's it, uh, yeah, there's the, that part of the screenplay. It's like the dark period, I forget yes. what it's called. Yeah. Dark Night of the Soul, something yeah. like that. It's yeah. in Save yeah. the Cat. Yeah. Read, read the fucking book. But Ben, should we talk about Iran? We should. All right. So as expected, uh, on February 2nd, last Friday, the U.S. bombed seven facilities in Iraq and Syria that are used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and militant groups supported by Iran. These airstrikes were in response to a drone attack on a U.S. base in Jordan in late January that killed three U.S. service members and wounded 30 more. 
The drone strike in Jordan was one of more than 160 attacks since mid-October on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria by these militant groups with links to Iran. Here's a clip of Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, talking about those strikes on Face the Nation over the weekend. What happened on Friday was the beginning, not the end of our response, and that there will be more steps, some seen, some perhaps unseen, uh, all in an effort to send a very clear message that when American forces are attacked, when uh, Americans are killed, as three service members tragically were, at Tower 22, we will respond and we will respond forcefully and we will respond in a sustained way. I would not describe it as some open-ended military campaign. We have a concept of how we intend to respond. I'm not going to telegraph it on this show, but we will execute that concept uh, with the kind of professionalism that only the U.S. military can bring to bear. So I guess based on that, we should expect maybe some further airstrikes or like cyber operations or sanctions to come. I don't know. It will take some time to see if this initial set of strikes were successful and these groups were deterred. CNN reported that one uh, main Iran-linked militia group, uh, Kataib Hezbollah or KH, announced the suspension of its military operations against U.S. troops in Iraq in order to prevent the embarrassment of the Iraqi government. That was their rationale. We'll see if that holds. But on Sunday, there was a drone attack on a base housing U.S. forces in Syria that killed six Kurdish fighters, and the Houthi rebels in Yemen just continue to fire missiles at ships in the Red Sea all day, every day. So, Ben, I was relieved to hear that Biden didn't consider attacks in Iran proper uh, and went with this more limited option, but also a little troubling or worrisome to hear Jake Sullivan say there's no back-channel conversations happening between the U.S. and Iran about de-escalation, although maybe there's indirect conversations through Oman or something happening, or he just didn't want to comment. But what did you make of what Biden chose in terms of this response? I think in terms of what they chose, it's pretty clear that they were looking and we joked, I mean, not that any of this is funny, but we made reference last week to when you get three options and you choose the middle option. And this is the middle option in the sense that if option one was kind of not having a military response that is escalatory, and then option three was, you know, striking IRGC targets, Iranian Revolutionary Guard targets inside of Iran. They chose an option where they went after these proxy groups and will probably continue to go after these groups in Iraq and Syria and Yemen. And so that's these militias that have been active for a long time in Iraq and Syria and the Houthis in Yemen, but not going into Iran. And the the perhaps unseen comment that Jake said seems mm-hmm. to be a reference cyber. to cyber, offensive yeah. cyber, which we don't talk about, the US government doesn't talk about, but I assume... That means there there might be some offensive cyber operations against the the Iranian. We're going to sign the Iranians up the for like a D triple C distro <laughs> list. <laughs> yeah. Maybe like a, one of those kind of strange text messages, yeah, from you know, Hakeem yeah. Jeffries or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no bad ideas in a brainstorm. So that's what they're doing, and I'd expect you know a few more airstrikes um, on on that network of you know what what is called the axis of resistance, um, these Iranian-backed groups. We talked last week about the fact that Iran doesn't necessarily pick targets or control these groups. Mm-hmm. In terms of deterrence, you made this point about the Houthis already attacking um, shipping in the Red Sea even after these strikes and some attacks on Syria. What I'd say about this is these groups have been operating in war zones for many, many years, right? Yeah. You know, the groups in Iraq goes all the way back to the height of the Iraq war. And mostly just want us out of Iraq. Yeah. The groups in Syria withstood the decade-long Syrian civil war. So they're not going to be deterred. They're not going to go out of business. They're not going to say, you know, we give up. You might degrade their capabilities. You might have them shift tactics. But 
fundamentally, the challenge here is there's not going to be some clear moment in which we can announce the restoration of deterrence because that's not how these groups work. Their ethos is to be in confrontation with the United States, in confrontation with Israel, with the dial turned up because of what's happening in Gaza. They're going to continue to do that. But maybe you make it a little harder for them to to do that by doing these strikes. But I don't think you're going to solve the fundamental issue, which is there's an escalation in Gaza and these groups are participating in that uh, escalation. I think that the KH, the Qatab Hezbollah announcement, is about wanting to make the U.S. the bad guy in terms of Iraqi sovereignty. Yeah, right? I think they did it before we responded. They did before. And, yeah. and I think what they're trying to do is they want the Iraqi government to feel embarrassed by the U.S. violating their sovereignty by taking airstrikes in Iraq and say, see, like, we're not trying to escalate here because what they ultimately want is the Iraqi government to ask the U.S. to leave. And there was about 2,500 U.S. troops there. And, and there was a bit of a dust up. You and I were texting about this, Tommy, like the U.S. government didn't apparently pre-notify the Iraqi government of these strikes. Yes, right. um, and and that's that's the dynamic that, that KH is trying to play into. So I don't know. I, I continue to feel like we are on a ladder of escalation. I'm glad that they put some limits on that in terms of not going into Iran. But I also, it's, it continues to just be the case that unless and until there's a ceasefire in Gaza, I, I don't know how you have a true restoration of some degree of calm in the region. Yeah. And I, it's interesting. I think to your point, Jake's language sort of shift from one about deterrence to just degrading the capabilities yeah. of these militia groups. Cause yeah. you're right. You can like blow up some of their missiles, but they're going to get more. Um, the Washington post reported that the drone that killed the U S service members in Jordan went undetected because it flew at low altitude and there were no air defense systems on the site capable of shooting it down. That is different from the initial reports that we talked about last week that maybe this enemy drone came in as a U.S. drone was landing, confused everybody, and was able to hit the target. But I guess this base didn't have weapons that could kill the drones. They just have electronic warfare defenses to sort of you know, fry their electronics and take them out. So that's bad, and that's insane to me that you, know, you give a, a forward deployed base like this and not have sufficient air defenses. But to this broader point, Ben, of whether, you know, the ways this conflict is spilling out into the region, here's another clip from Jake Sullivan. He was on CNN State of the Union, either around the Sunday shows this weekend. Um, the question was from Dana Bash. She basically said, you say you want to avoid a broader regional war, but aren't we already in one? We're hitting targets in all these different countries, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, here's a clip. These are distinct but related challenges. For example, what's happening in the Red Sea is obviously, to a certain extent, uh, triggered by what's happening in Gaza, but it's not the same thing. The Houthis aren't just hitting ships uh, related to Israel. They're hitting a lot of different ships from a lot of different countries. And so we are trying to deal with the challenge to freedom of navigation in the Red Sea. That is a distinct challenge. The forces in our, the militia groups in Iraq and Syria are hitting our forces. We're responding. And then, of course, Israel is dealing both with the challenge of Hamas in Gaza and the threat from Hezbollah in the north. So we will continue to work to deal with the challenge of escalation and continue uh, to work to ensure we're responding yeah. forcefully, but at the same time, uh, staying out of the prospect but of the United States getting pulled into a broad war in the Middle East of the kind that we have seen in the past. So, Ben, as, as uh, Ali Vaya said to me last week, a ceasefire won't guarantee that Iranian-linked militia groups stop these attacks, but not brokering a ceasefire almost certainly guarantees that they continue. It is a little worrisome that the core point that I think most people seem to agree on, that Gaza is the driver of this uptick in violence, is not 
echoed by top administration officials. Yeah, because it's not a matter of opinion. Um, it's just a matter of fact that since October 7th and then the Israeli military response, we have seen the Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea and an uptick in these attacks on the U.S. forces. That's just the reality. It's like Pentagon data. That's just what happened. Yeah. I mean, people, so, you know, we've seen violence, acts of violence um, in Gaza and the West Bank, in Israel, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, all go up since October 7th. And so by definition, this is connected and this is part of a regional war and the hottest part of that war is in Gaza and the scale of the Israeli military operation has been followed by a uptick in the scale of action by these groups. That, that's just what's happening. And so the, to be an option one person, you know, people, mm -hmm. sometimes people, you know, I, I did a, a, a cable appearance, Tommy, to, to continue that theme where someone said, you know, well, is it, isn't it the case that we have to, you know, do we have to respond militarily? to what happened at Tower 22. And we don't. I mean, there's not some mandate, no you know, that, that we have yeah. to bomb things. The, the reality is, I believe, ultimately, the thing that will best secure U.S. forces in the region, if that's the, the objective, is, number one, to have a ceasefire and a de-escalation of tensions across the region. And number two, by the way, to not have U.S. forces in some of these places. I right. mean, as we talked yeah. about last week, I, I don't... I don't think that the threat of ISIS necessitates necessarily a, a certain number of troops in Syria, you know, where people are vulnerable. They're vulnerable to these drones. Um, and so I, I just think it's important to at least make sure that we're surfacing the reality that it is an option available to the U.S. government to say, we're going to try to double down on a diplomatic approach here. And we're also going to think about whether there's a vulnerability, because if the idea is that you know, the the one thing that we're going to do to protect U.S. forces that are in all these disparate places in the Middle East is to to essentially have more U.S. forces in the Middle East. You know, that's the definition of kind of getting drawn into something. Um, and again, I think you have to be able to articulate where does this all end? I think that the Biden administration themselves would say that they would like this to end in de-escalation and in some process that could lead to a Palestinian state. And ultimately, there's going to have to be some diplomatic channel to the Iranians. Um, but but how do you get there? And 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 right now we're all about the escalation and 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 yes, we can talk about there's obviously these efforts, Tony Blinken's in the region, and we're trying to get a ceasefire or at least a pause for the release of some hostages and the delivery of some aid. Um, but otherwise it's kind of this ten tenuous, tense uh risk uh, of of things continuing to escalate yeah i mean look it's just worth pointing out that in 1983 when a suicide bomber uh hit an american military barracks in beirut reagan's response to was to pull you well, reagan's out. response is you know what actually i don't think these troops should be there um yeah which is a pretty logical uh, right and, response and today you'd be called you know like cut and run coward yeah. whatever nonsense but, and that's the other thing is that i think we talked about this last week but it bears repeating that the politics of this are there's a sense that the only politics you should be afraid of are being called 
week by you know Lindsey Graham, Neil Kahn Hawks, yeah, and, you know, or having a bad day on cable news because, or having even like an Obama redline kind of thing. Um, when I actually don't, the politics, the bad politics are U.S. troops being vulnerable. Bad politics are twenty-seven thousand people being dead in Gaza. The bad, you know, the, the, their their outcomes are are, are ultimately going to drive the politics. Yeah. Stuff. So let's turn to Gaza. Um, the United Nations World Health Organization says that one hundred thousand people in Gaza are either dead, injured, or missing and presumed dead. And they say that sixty percent of the more than twenty-seven thousand fatalities reported by Gaza's health ministry have been women and children. UNICEF says that at least 17,000 kids in Gaza are unaccompanied or separated from their families and called it the most dangerous place in the world to be a child. Pretty haunting statistics there. Uh, about 85% of the 2.2 million people in Gaza have been displaced. A huge chunk of them have been forced into refugee camps in southern Gaza along the border. The population of Rafah, which is a city on the border of Egypt, is five times what it was before the war. And now Israeli authorities say they're going to expand operations into Rafah in the coming days. So that will be a catastrophe. That context is the backdrop for Secretary of State Tony Blinken's fifth visit to the Middle East that's happening right now. He met with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman on Monday. He's got stops in Egypt, Qatar, Israel, the West Bank. More on that in a second. But meanwhile, Ben, in, in Israel, the national security minister, this right-wing zealot named Itmar Ben-Gavir, told the Wall Street Journal that he would oppose any ceasefire deal that would free Palestinian prisoners being held on terrorism charges or end the war before Hamas was fully defeated. Uh, remember, this is a guy who can pull his support from Netanyahu and topple the government anytime he wants. So a you know, powerful lunatic, but powerful. Ben Gavir also attacked Biden saying, quote, instead of giving us his full backing, Biden is busy giving humanitarian aid and fuel to Gaza, which goes to Hamas. If Trump was in power, the U.S. conduct would be completely different. So it's very clear the yeah, Israelis. Bit tell, yeah. yeah, a bit of yeah, a tell there. Yeah. Uh, ben Gavir's son also tweeted that Biden has uh, Alzheimer's. So cool family. Yeah. There was a little good news right before we started recording. All these Israeli politicians yeah, have like Net asshole sons. Netanyahu's son is a is yeah. Like they the call Don him the Dauphin. Yeah, 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 the yeah, Don yeah, Jr. Yeah. of Israel. A little good news before we started recording. Qatar said they received a positive response from Hamas to the proposed ceasefire and hostage release deal. I suspect it's a counteroffer. It will take some time to kind of work through and negotiate, but fingers crossed. But Ben, stepping back, every week we come in here, the situation is worse. Uh, the IDF military campaign has failed to take out Hamas's leadership. It's failed to rescue any hostages. And yet neither the Israeli or US approach changes a bit. I feel like I'm going to lose my fucking mind. It's like, at, at what point, what does it take for people to understand that none of this is working? Yeah. It's time to change course. They've not rescued hostages. I mean, not one. Uh, one actually, sorry, one, one in the opening days. Okay, and and meanwhile, you got a lot more out during a pause, and and the the Ben Gavir comment about Hamas, we can all agree that you know we don't want Hamas to be running Gaza. We can all agree that we don't want there to ever be another October seventh, but Hamas is not going to be defeated. They're, they're, it's it's we've talked about this, but the, their their leadership is in part out of Gaza. They're there, there are many different elements of Hamas in Gaza. Um, they, they, there's not, they're not going to surrender. They're not going to say, you know, we're out of business now. And so th th this constant repetition of objectives that are militarily unattainable, the kind of military recovery of the hostages and the military destruction of Hamas are the articulation of unattainable objectives, which is a recipe for an open-ended war, right. which is a recipe for the kind of catastrophic human suffering that you articulated in those statistics. And the fact that this is now kind of coming to Rafa, you know, at the same time that there have been some Israeli politicians, including people like Ben Gavir, 
suggesting that they what they really want to do is displace all these people in Egypt. You know, I mean mm-hmm. that 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 starts to become more and more a question about what the intention is here as they kind of push south as the population pushes south. Sorry, we have, um, uh, that's pundit we barking very, incessantly. Very in opinionated our, dog. Yeah, in very angry dog. Wants a treat uh, out there. So, I uh, but I think we do have to just kind of keep coming back to the scale of human suffering because it just points to the fact that getting in some more trucks uh, of right. assistance is not the issue. The issue is the military operation, the nature of the military operation. Some aspects of that military operation have been dialed back from uh, like at the height of the air campaign, but th- this is still uh, there are still people dying every single day. And as you said, I think the point we also want to come back to is because people will say, well, you know, isn't this, uh, how can we trust this count? As you indicated, the count is probably low, okay? Because they can't get to every body under the rubble. Or some people say, well, what portion of these people that are a part of the the count are Hamas? Well, 60% at least of these people are women and children. Uh, I don't think the, those people. I mean, yeah, are, the Israeli estimate of the number of Hamas fighters they've killed is like ten thousand. Yeah, and the casualty count is twenty seven thousand. Yeah, least, so, so it, this doesn't. The point is, at some point, if the rationalization of this military campaign depends upon the dehumanization of the people who are dying, that may not be the intent of everybody who's rationalizing it, but it's the reality that when you have over well over ten thousand kids dead and tens of thousands of additional kids, we'll just focus on the children here, at risk of starvation in uninhabitable conditions with over 80% of the housing units in Gaza either destroyed or damaged, what else is going on here? I, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what else to say about it. And, and the Biden people will say, look, we've really pushed hard on the Israelis to allow more aid into Gaza. And like, I, I'm sure that is true, but what does it say about your partner, your interlocutor there, you have to fight you have them to, fight. to allow in aid so everyone doesn't starve to death. Yeah. That's not a good yeah. it, setup. It, if that's where the bar is here, the bar yeah. needs to be raised. Also, Biden did put in place an executive order that will allow the United States to sanction violent settlers or those who support them, which I think is a big, important policy and executive order. But that is about the West Bank. Uh, it's not about what's happening in Gaza. A couple more things in Gaza, though. So CNN reported that the IDF is pumping large volumes of seawater into Hamas's tunnels. Not sure what that means for potential hostage rescue if they're in there. Uh, there's also concern that it could screw up uh, the fresh water tables in the region, but it's happening. Uh, the New York Times just reported that Israeli intelligence thinks 32 of the 136 hostages have died, which is tragic and awful, but I think also why you always hear um, the debates about uh, ceasefire and hostage release deal, including bodies of those who have passed away. The U.S. is reportedly pushing hard for a six-week ceasefire because they believe it will be impossible for Israel to fully ramp up operations again after yeah. that is over, which makes sense. And Axios reported today that the U.S. is working on a separate diplomatic agreement to calm tensions between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon. So that would, of course, be good. One other thing, Ben, so last week we talked about UNRWA the aid organization that provides relief to Palestinians, especially in Gaza. It's basically the only uh, organization that has boots on the ground in Gaza that can distribute aid. The U.S. suspended support to UNRWA after Israeli allegations that UNRWA employees were part of the October 7th attacks. There's been sort of a lot more review of, of that decision happening as we speak. I think the U.S. is kind of walking it back a bit, saying, well, actually, we gave them all aid for this year already, right? So maybe yeah. this won't have an impact. But there you're seeing other co- countries kind of follow our lead, which is a problem. But here's a clip of Prime Minister Netanyahu elaborating on what he see- wants to see happen to UNRWA. I think it's time that the international community and the UN itself 
understand that UNRWA's mission has to end. UNRWA is self-perpetuating. It is self-perpetuating also uh, in its desire to keep alive the, the Palestinian refugee issue. And we need to get other UN agencies and other aid agencies uh, replacing UNRWA uh, in, uh, if we're going to solve the, the problem of Gaza as we intend to do. In that same press event, um, he also says that, you know, uh, testimony from UNRWA employees were a big part of the ICJ genocide case. And it was interesting that he linked that with these concerns about uh, UNRWA employees potentially being a part of Hamas or participating in the October 7th attacks. Again, these the, the Israeli concerns about UNRWA are not new, uh, but it was interesting to hear Netanyahu say he basically wants the organization dissolved. Like, that's his goal here. Well, and here's what's happening ideologically. This is an important thing for people to understand about UNRWA and what Netanyahu was saying, because actually that doesn't have to do with whether or not some of them were in Hamas or not. Actually, it's bigger than that. So UNRWA was set up in the late 40s when the Nakba happened, when hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were displaced and turned into refugees. Mm -hmm. and by definition, refugees. They're driven from their homes. They're in camps. They're someplace else. The UN set up a special agency, UNRWA, to deal with those refugee populations, to provide services to them. The reason that Netanyahu and people of his ideological inclination in Israel want there to be no such thing as UNRWA anymore is because they don't want there to be any refugee status for Palestinians anymore. Exactly. Because if Palestinians are categorized as refugees, maybe they, you know, some of them obviously continue to argue they have a right to return to their homes. Yep. And obviously those homes are in Israel. Or, you know, even as refugees who aren't going to be able to return to Israel, they kind of stay where they are. What, what Netanyahu wants, and certainly a Ben Gavir wants, is he wants essentially those Palestinian populations, and he himself, by the way, said this, the clip we played last week, back from the 70s, was about there is a Palestinian state, essentially it's Jordan. Mm -hmm. He wants the Palestinians that are in Lebanon and Jordan to not be thought of as Palestinians, as refugees. He wants them to just be thought of as Arabs who live in Jordan or who live in Lebanon. Right. This is like a really important ideological point that he wants to kind of erase a certain international legal categorization of identity for Palestinians. They're no longer refugees. They're just people that live in Jordan. And that's it. And if you want to give them services, well, the UN has other bodies that can provide those services. And, and that's like a huge tell about what the ideological project is behind this. To people who think you know, who may listen and think, well, you guys are hard on Israel. What I'd say is that I, I sincerely believe that the best outcome for Israel, the best way for Israel to live in peace with its neighbors is for there to be a Palestinian state. I think anybody, including myself, who's looked at that doesn't think that you're going to have the right of return where everybody's going to move back to their homes right. uh, in Israel proper, but you have to have a resettlement of those refugees in a new Palestinian state. And if you wipe out the categorization of them as refugees, you're wiping out essentially the idea of a Palestinian state. So I just I disagree with Netanyahu about this is not about even just Palestinian aspirations. It's about whether or not you think it's best for Israel to have there be a two state solution. He clearly does not think that. Yeah, he's um, this is a long term project. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about how public opinion of the war has changed in the U.S. Uh, there was an Associated Press poll the other day that found that half of U.S. adults think that Israel's war in Gaza has, quote, gone too far, uh, and only 31% of U.S. adults approve of Biden's handling of uh, the war in Gaza, including only 46% of Democrats. 33% of Republicans say Israel's military response has gone too far. That's up from 18% 
in November. So there's been a huge movement there. Include 52% of independents are now in that place. NBC also did a big poll that came out over the weekend. There were some foreign policy questions. Trump defeats Biden by 11 points on the question of improving America's standing in the world. That used to be a strength for Biden. Only 29% approve of Biden's handling of the war in Gaza. It's down five points. And then among voters under 35 years old, only 15% approve of Biden's handling of the Israel-Hamas war, uh, 70% disapprove. So like this war, obviously events are going very badly over in Israel, but the political impact it's having for Joe Biden and the prospect of re-election is incredibly damaging. And I think, you know, what we've talked about on this show is we know the administration is pushing hard behind the scenes for a ceasefire deal. They want a hostage release and some sort of negotiated solution, but they don't make those comments as forcefully in public. Politico reported that in private, Biden complains about Bibi Netanyahu. He calls him, quote, a bad fucking guy. Uh, and he worries out loud about the risk of Bibi dragging the U.S. into a wider Middle Eastern war because that conflict would buy Netanyahu more time politically to stay in power before Israeli voters push him out. All we're asking is, say the shit in public, yeah, Joe. Yeah, like, just, yeah, we go. agree with you. Yeah. We know it. Everyone yeah. knows this about Netanyahu. Every administration has hated Netanyahu since the 90s. Yeah, except Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. except for Trump. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a well point. Um, but like, I mean, even even Trump, though, soured on him after- Trump soured uh, on him because he didn't back him on January 6th. Yeah, and then, <laughs> then, he, then he accused him of not yeah. supporting the, yeah. uh, the Soleimani strike. He basically strike. treated uh, Netanyahu- like a Republican senator like a that didn't back him up on January <laughs> yes, 6th, exactly. which is kind of funny in a way. That's exactly um, right. But I, yeah, you're, you're, this, the politics of this are obvious, and they, they've been obvious for a while. You could have seen this coming. I think what's telling about that overall number, because we talked about how the biggest problem for re-election is the intensity felt by a sliver of the electorate, right? So it doesn't even have to be like an overwhelming majority of Americans singing something. The Democratic coalition is so fragile, you know, the, yep. the margins are so thin that if, if a, a few tens of thousands of people in a few states are like, you know what, I'm out, I'm voting for a third party candidate, I'm sitting this out, Joe Biden will lose the election. And, and that's kind of, that's the thing that you should be most concerned about. I'm struck by the overall numbers, Tommy, because as much as I don't want to talk down the scale of our own audience, it's not like... 51% of Americans are worldos here who are like following this really closely. We don't know that's um, true. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is that just the background noise of what's happening has reached enough people that they're like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's just scary I, images on TV. Yeah, yeah. And 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 it's scary images in a sense that we're getting dragged into something. Yeah. You know, it's like what we're bombing Yemen now and we're bombing Iraq and we're bombing Syria. We bombed three different countries, you know. Um, and so I think it's just, it, it should be a warning sign of, why de-escalation is actually the better politics, even if it's not the thing that plays well in Washington day right. to day. And foreign policy is not usually the drivers in elections until it is. Until it's Warren bad. Warren yeah, yeah, right? And you, yeah. But you can watch like Biden's approval takes a huge hit around the Afghanistan withdrawal. And it's sort of fallen steadily ever since. That's a, there's a real demarcation there. You can see in the average of polls. Yeah, you don't you don't really win on foreign policy, but you can lose on certainly it, you know. can lose. Speaking of losing, Ben, there have been some terrible dehumanizing op eds and articles written about the conflict in Gaza. There was a Wall Street Journal op ed from the director of the Middle East Media Research Institute, which I've never heard of, calling Dearborn America's jihad capital. I wonder who funds them. Interesting to find out. And then Tom Friedman wrote an op-ed about how to understand the Middle East through this extended um, metaphor <laughs> or comparison to the animal kingdom. Yeah. And I, I didn't read it until today because I was like, I saw the outrage. I didn't read the thing. I'm just genuinely shocked that an editor didn't say to him like, hey, man, you've been around the block a while, like comparing countries and people to animals 
is going to land as dehumanizing to some people. Maybe just start over. Yeah. And and uh, look, the first one, the Wall Street Journal one, was your, one of your classic AstroTurf organizations. That That's a, like, you, yeah. like you said, the funding is like, well, who are, there's always some group like this. You know, we had to, back in the day, it was like Frank Gaffney. Remember that guy? Oh, that guy's crazy. It was always yes. like Islam yes. Watch or something. And it was always, you yeah. know, super Now he's a centrist bigoted. Republican. <laughs> you know, now he's probably like a never Trumper. But yeah, maybe think about the idea of dehumanizing an entire city of people that, you know, it's a remarkable community, by the way, Dearborn. But then the, the Tom Friedman one, is that even more kind of baffling and astonishing? Because comparing a whole region of people to the animal kingdom, and then also it, what the animals were like wasps and, you know. The U.S. It, was an aging lion, yeah, right? Yeah, so we, yeah. we, so we, we got to credit be, ourselves. We got to be Mustafa and yeah, the Lion Mustafa. King. And then, you know, the the bad guys, quote unquote, uh, were, you know, all these various other animals. And it, it's a definition of dehumanization. I mean, li- like literally, it's de- yeah. dehumanizing them and turning right. them animals. And to your point... It does, you know, speak to this kind of like lazy white guy kind of take. A, oh, I got an idea. Like we're gonna call them the animals, um, and and actually, I kind of do like you kind of fault the ed- like. Does anyone kind of look like give this a pass? Like, uh, well, you Lebanon, know. Yemen, and Syria, Iraq—they're caterpillars. What, uh, Tom? What are you doing? Yeah, the, 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 uh, like a, a, a creature you could step on, you know. And again, I'm I'm sure Tom Friedman wasn't thinking that he was doing that. But that, that, to your point, that that's when an editor comes in and is like, actually, can we get maybe there's a different metaphor? Maybe there's a food metaphor, you know? Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, or a I don't know a historical analogy. What you know? if what uh, if the world was flat? <laughs> but there's there's a metaphor. What if you, you know? took a cab somewhere and talked to that person <laughs> yeah, and then wrote yeah, up some shit? Yeah. Two quick things before we take a break. This has already been a long election year. It's going to be a long election year. If you need help get through it, pre-order our book, Democracy Reals. It's how to save America in ten easy steps. It is fun. It is funny. It is a useful guide to getting involved in politics and making a difference. Plus, Crooked is going to donate its profits from the book to support Vote Save America and other organizations mobilizing for progressive outcomes in the 2024 election. Democracy or Else is available on June 25th, but you can pre-order now. Go to crooked.com slash books, crooked.com slash books or wherever books are sold. And if you buy now, you help us get on the New York Times bestseller list, maybe. So check it out. Also, uh, we're making a ton of great content here at Crooked. If you're not checking out our YouTube, you are leaving prime content on the table. Hysteria has a great series called This Fucking Guy, where they roast some of the worst men in the country. I have a show with Brian Tyler Cohn called Liberal Tears, where we rank stupid things happening in the world, terrible people. We have a lot of fun. It's very fun. We actually... Uh, humiliate each other at the end. And then Love It has a new segment called What a Weekday, where he jokes about early breaking news of the week. So go to crooked.com slash videos to watch now. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR 
by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. So, Ben, sticking in Washington. So a lot of Biden's foreign policy priorities are now tied up in this fight over immigration and supplemental yeah. funding requests in Congress. Great PSA, by the way. Oh, Just yesterday? I recommend oh, Pots of America. Yeah, very good show's fine. Uh, so remember, <laughs> this show's better, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so remember, like, the MAGA Republicans, they've decided that Ukraine is bad. Supporting Ukraine is bad. So Biden tried to link funding for Ukraine with a supplemental funding request for Israel to make it politically palatable or at least hard to vote against. Republicans said, no way. We're not going to provide more funding for Ukraine until we secure our own border. So Senator James Lankford, this conservative Republican from Oklahoma, worked with Democrats like Chris Murphy, friend of the pod from Connecticut, to negotiate an immigration bill. And then they released the final text of that bill on Sunday. It had immigration. It had Ukraine. It had uh, uh, you know Israel funding. It had Indo-Pacific countering China funding, or the whole smorgasbord. And then it took like 12 hours, 24 hours for Republicans to immediately walk away from the bill, including Langford, who wrote the bill, negotiated the thing, and now won't say whether he supports his own bill. Mitch McConnell portrays himself as a cold warrior, staunch supporter of Ukraine. Uh, he instantly caved under pressure from Trump, who said this bill would be a gift to Biden because he wants to run on uh, the border being a mess. So, Ben, uh, Ukraine got a little bit of good news recently. EU leaders achieved a breakthrough on a deal to provide 50 billion euros to Ukraine through 2027. They had to overcome opposition from Viktor Orban in Hungary, which is not easy, but they did it. But 
This bill in the Senate contained $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, $10 billion for humanitarian aid for conflict zones, including Gaza, and billions to counter China in the Pacific. And like people need to understand, this is existential for Ukrainians. Like There are reports that the Ukrainian military is running out of ammo on the battlefield as we speak. They may lose the battle for the city uh, of, of Divka. And so I, I don't know, I guess I'm just sort of like at a loss if that combination of policies can't get Republican support, what will? Like, how do you get these people to be serious and actually govern? I, I'm out of ideas. Yeah, you saw kind of the when what, Mike Johnson. I always forget the guy's uh, name Speaker Johnson. Yeah, yeah. Speaker Johnson. Uh, you know, he suggested that he wanted to put up a clean bill of just the Israel aid, right? Yeah, he pulled up the seventeen point six billion for and, Israel. And again, like, we've been hard on Biden. Like, uh, good message from Biden that he would veto uh, that standalone bill and not kind of succumb to the cynicism of kind of pushing that through. Some also good moves potentially from the Biden administration to try to find other ways to get some assistance to Ukraine. Like there's excess stockpiles of U.S. weapons in Europe that maybe Mm. you can redirect under existing authorities to the Ukrainians. But just so people understand this, I mean, this isn't just you know, some new fancy capability won't give the Ukrainians. This isn't like, oh, we're going to send them F-16s. This is like the basic nuts and bolts artillery, the stuff that if if you're on the Ukrainian front line right now and you've been fighting your fucking ass off for two years years. to save your country, to stand up to Vladimir Putin, and you've gotten waves of like Wagner Group convicts coming at you. You've got the Russians bombing your your kids, uh, you know, in your homes back behind you. And you're sitting there and all of a sudden, like someone's going to tell you, you know what, actually, like we have a quarter of the artillery that we need because Marjorie Taylor some fucking Green. MAGA yeah, people are trying to make a point and Donald Trump needs to run on the border. I would be losing my mind. I can't imagine. I mean, I think we should, you know, we were texting about this, like, just be clear about the empathy we feel to the Ukrainians who've done everything that they've been asked and have sacrificed, you know, 70,000 casualties at least, like everything on the line. And and there's some dumb political game in Washington. And look, even if you're skeptical of Ukraine aid, and and I think you and I are very open to like diplomatic approaches, and I I don't think any of those are going to happen before the election anyway, because Putin's going to wait for that. And we can talk about that in the context of our buddy Tucker. But even if you're skeptical about it, as a country, we have like led these people to believe that we're there for them. Right. And, and so whether you agree with the, uh, the approach in Ukraine or not, leading these people to believe that we're there, we're in the fight, here you go, here's the spigot of weapons that are coming your way so you can get in this fight, to turn that off in the middle- Just pull the rug out, yeah. Is totally reprehensible. It's totally like cutting those people loose when they're in a life and death situation. I usually- as you know, refrain from the like, something happens over here in the world and the other people over here are going to look at that and think you're not reliable. I actually make an exception to that rule in this case, where where I usually object to that. It's like, oh, if we bomb this country over here, this other country will be, you know, this is more just like, do we keep agreements, you know, And, 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 and to lead a country to believe that we're there for them and then remove it and this is not at all Joe Biden's fault or anybody in his administration. This is entirely on these MAGA people. It's so reprehensible and and, and it's not kind of breaking through because people substantively are obviously interested in the border. Politically, they're interested in our election. Just spare a thought for like what this means for the Ukrainians. 
it's good that the EU, it's a good test that they stood up and were like, you know what, at a minimum, we're going to come on and kick in essentially about the same amount of money that the Americans were committing, you know, between 55 and 60 billion. Some of that, though, is for like supporting the Ukrainian government. The Europeans cannot make the Ukrainians whole on things like artillery. Like they just don't have the capacity yeah. and the pace to do it. So it is, it is what it is. And it sucks is the, the truth. It's terrible. And this, this bill that was negotiated in the Senate is like the Republican wish list. It's, it's, yeah. it's what they Including, want. Including, by the way, support for Ukraine used to be something that was on their wish yeah, list. It is, uh, it is the Ta- worst politics. Israel, Taiwan. It's yeah. literally like a, Repo- it's like a, it's like a right-wing Republican bill. I know Favreau made fun of me a little bit for suggesting this, but I do wonder, I mean, uh, being tough on China is like the number one thing that pops in all these Republican kind of primary ads and polling. I do wonder if you can portray Republican opposition to this bill as being soft on China in some sort of effective way. I don't know. It's kind of a bank shot. Um, it would require you know some nimble messaging to make it work, but I, I'd rather try. If, if we had put this bill forward in like 2015, in the Obama years, people would have thought we lost our minds and yeah. like somehow the White House got hijacked by like Dick Cheney. By Dick Cheney. Like this is it's bonkers. And and maybe Tommy, what needs to be done is someone needs to let Hugh Hewitt know that not to be too little inside mm. world though here, but uh that there's ships, there's ships uh oh, funding for Indo Pacific ships. ships. I don't even know if that's in the bill, but like we just you know maybe uh, just send Hugh to the yeah. Indo-Pacific. You <laughs> yeah. can find out for himself. Lots of news out of Ukraine itself too, Ben. So President Zelensky said he's considering a shakeup, not just of the military, but also his political leadership. So last week there was some reports that he summoned his top general to tell him he'd been fired. Then he seemed to back off that firing. And now lo- now it looks like the, the shakeup might be happening and might be even bigger. Zelensky gave an interview to an Italian TV station over the weekend. And he said, a reset, a new beginning is necessary. I have something serious in mind, which is not about a single person, but about my direction of the country's leadership. So, you know, there's a bunch of things at play here. You know, he might be firing, you know, the folks who were in charge of the failed counteroffensive as a way to show that, you know, they're learning from that mistake. They may just be kind of increasingly at odds with each other, Zelensky and his top generals. Additionally, though, obviously the country is sick of being at war. There's concern about a new mobilization effort that would bring up to 500,000 new conscripts into the fight. There's reports about corruption. Uh, Last week, the Ukrainian Security Service announced that it uncovered a $40 million corruption scheme among military officials who signed a contract for 100,000 artillery shells, none of which were ever delivered. Um, I don't know if you saw Masha Gessen has a piece in the New Yorker yeah, this week. It's good. Yeah, good. about democratic backsliding Ukraine. Yeah. The pieces of that are basically, I mean, it's a long piece, but there's the martial law declaration that's been in place since the day after the invasion that controls who can and can't enter the country. Uh, the media has been tightly regulated by the government and taken over in some instances. They can't have elections because it's not safe and because like a huge chunk of the population is out of Ukraine. So Ben, I mean, none of us like want to fly spec a, a country at war or a leader at war. Zelensky is clearly shown like unimaginable courage in the face of, you know, the invasion and occupation. But you know, historically speaking, crises like this can lead to political leaders becoming entrenched and some democratic backsliding. How do you think the U.S. and and mostly the EU probably should handle these delicate conversations about, you know, supporting Ukraine in this time of crisis, but also not letting it change its like fundamental identity? There's a lot that's been going on and, and, and and that's a good summary. The, clearly, Zelensky and, and the top general uh, Zaluzhny is that is that pronounced right? Uh, clear, I didn't sorry, even try. Looking it. over at a long I, I asked for pronunciation. This is why it's good that we have a Russian producer. I can't even speak. But, but the 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 the, the um, 
General Zaluzny, uh, who's a top commander, is hugely popular in Ukraine, is more popular than Zelensky. And and I think there's all, long been a thought that that was like a source of tension, that you essentially had, these are the two most popular people in Ukraine. I don't know if General Zaluzny has any political ambitions or not. What is the case is that if Zelensky was the guy who you know helped save Ukraine by not leaving the initial days and showing such courage and then mobilizing kind of this world assistance, General Zeluzny is the guy who came up with this ingenious strategy, essentially, of like baiting the Russians into extending their supply lines and then just relentlessly attacking the supply lines. Right. He, I mean, I'm not a military guy. Like, uh, you know, I played risk like some people. Mm. Um, I mean, I was, you know, I obviously was in a lot of these conversations the in the sit room, yeah. but I wasn't like making military strategy. But I know enough to know that this guy like made a lot of, you know, right calls. Yeah. He also did the kind of fake offensive in the South right. before the offensive in the North. So clearly this guy knows what he's doing. Yeah. But lately, um, they've been kind of not on the same page. They've publicly. not been on the same he did page. Interview, I think with the Economist, the Bakhmut thing. Yeah. Remember, there was like, why are we like so focused on this right. place? And who knows? Maybe I'm again precisely because I'm not a military strategist. Sometimes you need to change commanders, even if they're great commanders. A, a different phase of the war might need a new person. I don't know. What is concerning is when you have like this kind of, you know, clearly Zelensky wants him gone, but he's not willing to kind of push him out. He's probably suggested, it seems like from reports that he should resign, but he doesn't want to resign. That kind of civil military tension is just uncomfortable given the stakes for the Ukrainians. And then I think in in terms of the broader question about like Zelensky himself or just the risk of corruption as the war goes on, um, because we should be clear, it's not like Ukraine had like solved all those problems with corruption in its military and its political system. I think the EU can be really important here because right. however part of joining. yeah however this war is going to end and it may end in an unsatisfying kind of frozen conflict in a year or two in a negotiation the best carrot right now the best incentive for the Ukrainians is EU membership yep um it's not right. the same thing as NATO but it's it's in some ways more important for them as a country to be in that block a lot comes with that. A lot comes with that in terms of the rule of law, in terms of civil military relations, in terms of corruption. And I just think the EU providing, and especially given that they just kicked in all this assistance, they can be the, you know, the the sunlight, the transparency, and the incentive for there not to be backsliding. And and so I, I hope that this is something that, that can be a real European focus and the US can obviously reinforce it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Speaking of revered military leaders, Tucker Carlson is in Moscow <laughs> um, with uh, David Sachs, probably now he's alone. Uh, this afternoon, he announced in a video posted on Twitter that he has interviewed Vladimir Putin. Uh, here's a clip of Tucker talking about why they went to Moscow for this interview. Here's why we're doing it. First, because it's our job. We're in journalism. Our duty is to inform people. Two years into a war that's reshaping the entire world, most Americans are not informed. They have no real idea what's happening in this region, here in Russia or 600 miles away in Ukraine. But they should know. They're paying for much of it in ways they might not fully yet perceive. The war in Ukraine is a human disaster. It's left hundreds of thousands of people dead an entire generation of young Ukrainians, and has depopulated the largest country in Europe. But the long-term effects are even more profound. This war has utterly reshaped the global military and trade alliances, and the sanctions that followed have as well. And in total, they have upended the world economy. The post-World War II economic order, the system that guaranteed prosperity in the West for more than 80 years, is coming apart very fast, and along with it, the dominance of the U.S. dollar. 
These are not small changes. They are history-altering developments. They will define the lives of our grandchildren. So uh, Tucker also says in this this little clip, uh, quote, not a single Western journalist has bothered to interview the president of the other country involved in this conflict, Vladimir Putin. Now, uh, I actually don't have a problem with Tucker interviewing Putin. I don't think it'll be a good interview. I don't think I'll ask him the right questions. I don't think we'll learn anything from it. But as like a general matter, I'm not someone who's going to shout down someone for doing an interview. Uh, that said, that claim that no other journalist has tried is utter bullshit. I'm sure oh, yeah. dozens of them have tried. Christian Amanpour immediately said she's been trying to interview Putin since the day the war started. Um, what is far more interesting is why Putin would give an interview to Tucker. I suspect it's a couple of factors. One, he obviously knows that Tucker opposes U.S. support for Ukraine, that Tucker is influential in Republican circles. Uh, he's probably trying to help stymie this supplemental funding bill that's going through Congress right now. He's trying to help Trump because Putin prefers Trump. We just, we know that. But there's also a bigger picture, Ben, that I think Putin's conservative, white, religious, ethno-nationalist worldview is a lot more like Tucker's worldview than I think Tucker's fans would care to admit, or or then Tucker is really a like Joe Biden, for example, at least at this point in his career. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, first of all, something weird with Tucker, you know, he always says like we and our, I know, like, well, like the, the royal he, we, like him and his a, producer. He's just a guy, like, I, I know. Uh, and he's not even like, like a, a network. Website. I guess he's got some people with him, so maybe he's a good team leader. Team but, Tucker Carlson. But, <laughs> it's, kind of, it's just kind of it does seem like a royal we. Grading, yeah. Um, yeah, I think the, the the two key points here are one, um, Tucker will say some things that you you find yourself like agreeing with. He's like. Americans have no idea like how fucking crazy this war is and hundreds of thousands of people have died and it's had these huge consequences. That's true. And I, I kind of appreciate when Tucker has this kind of disgust for war and stuff, but Putin's the guy who did the war. Like, it, like what's so maddening about listening to him is it's like, it's not like the Ukrainians like invaded Russia, you know, right. even if you, even if you're somebody who thinks that like we should have given Ukrainian like NATO membership, like Vladimir Putin invaded this country and, yeah. and he acts like that didn't happen. Like the war broke out or something. He also, Putin also went through like five different stated reasons why, right? It was like yeah. Nazis were committing genocide <laughs> yeah, yeah, against yeah, Russian yeah. speakers. Like there's yeah. all this bullshit early on. Yeah. just abandoned this rationale. And he also, I mean, he has another piece in this video, which I uh, watched, unfortunately, where he talks about like he's doing this for free speech. Well, guess who doesn't have free speech? Any yeah. journalist in Russia, right? So anyway, that's obvious. I think the more interesting point is when you ended on, which is the ideology of this. And there's a bit of a tell in that, you know, when he talks about the system that guaranteed prosperity in the West, you know, um, this is a guy like Putin's ideological project, which we haven't talked about in a while, but we've talked about a lot in the past, is essentially this kind of white Christian nationalist, right? It's anti-LGBT, it's anti-Muslim, it's anti, you know, he's taken up the cancel culture cause, yeah. you know? Um, but he really is this kind of, you know, white supremacist. Putin is like a white supremacist, right? And I think Tucker really truly believes that 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 we should be allies with Putin, right? And 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 actually, Vivek uh, weirdly gave you know that somehow we're going to flip Putin against the Chinese. That essentially, the, oh yeah, the, the, the natural, 5D chess. Yeah, the, yeah. The, but that I think these guys naturally believe that like there's this kind of white Christian guy like in in Moscow, like yeah, maybe they're Orthodox Christians, but like they're they're all on the kind of white team, the Christian team, and and Orban, and and we hate Muslims, and we hate gay people, and we hate you know 
Taylor Swift and, you know, Travis Kelsey, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, I wouldn't be surprised if Tucker asked about that, but like, uh, and that's, but that's truly what these people believe. And, yeah. and I think the reason the interview is useful is I think it does illuminate that that's the stakes, like in this election, you know, it's, it's, yes, it's about the war in Ukraine, but it's also basically like if Trump wins, like that's actually what we're going to be doing. We're going to be like, you know what? Yeah, we're with this far right kind of white nationalist Christian us versus everybody else. And the dollar has to be strong to like control the economies of the global South. You know, mm -hmm. I, like it, this is again, like it's a coherent worldview. Like I, I actually give Tucker credits the wrong word, but at least he says the quiet part out loud because you can then like think about it and respond to it in ways that the MAGA people in Congress are too dumb to know. Yeah. They don't even really know the ideological project they're part of. Tucker actually articulates what this ideological project is all about. And I think that is pretty much where Trump is. You know, Trump himself, maybe not like smart enough to fully realize exactly what he's doing, but I, I think he instinctively gets it, you know? And, and that's why I'm actually interested to see this interview. And look, Tucker's been, they've been running Tucker on Russian TV. So like, he's actually a familiar Constantly. face. Yeah, he's um, well known. Because if you watch all these, you know, bloodthirsty Russian TV channels, they always have like some Tucker segments. So he's kind of a Russian TV personality too. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we'll we'll watch the interview when it comes out. We'll probably talk about it next week. Uh, you know, we'll see if he asks Putin about the death toll in Ukraine or, you know, the lies about defeating Nazis. Or Alexei or, Navalny or yeah, Navalny, journalism in Russia. Evan yeah. Gershkovich, yeah. like journalists that are, including American journalists that are in prison. But I don't think he will. Yeah. Or he might. And then, you know, Putin's actually not, he gives some weird, like, creepy answer. You know, he kind of half smiles and he's like, oh, we will see what happens to our friend. You know, like a- Yeah, and it's yeah. me through a translation. It'll be yeah. hard to like push back in real yeah. time. But yeah, we'll see. Anyway. Uh, I'm looking for the Tucker reaction shot. So does he do the kind of befuddled, that look he gives people? You or know? the like yeah. kind of childish giggle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, Vlad. Yeah. So funny. Uh, all right, a couple more things. We're running a little long, but that's okay. So Ben, El Salvador held elections this past Sunday and the incumbent, uh, Rafael Bukele, claimed a landslide victory, even though the votes are still technically being counted. But, uh, you know, also little side note here, the Constitution does not allow a president to serve consecutive terms. So this was not, uh, you know, not what he was supposed to be doing. Bukele put his country into state of emergency two years ago to take on gang violence. and It has both made him super popular and has done incredible damage to civil liberties. More than 75,000 people have been arrested and human rights organizations warn that thousands of innocent people have been swept up in the crackdown and are just rotting in jails. Uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken responded to the election on Twitter Monday, writing, uh, we look forward to continuing to prioritize good governance, inclusive economic prosperity, fair trial guarantees, and human rights in El Salvador. So Tony, I think, sees the writing on the wall there that Bukele likely won the election, even if um, there were some uh, inconsistencies in the reporting and, and the way it, it went down. And that statement is obviously kind of a, a aspirational set of things we hope to uh, collaborate with El Salvador on. We spoke with Luis Herrera, a democracy activist from El Salvador who founded an organization called Tracoda, which focuses on building technological tools to combat corruption and foster democracy about Bukele's reelection. Here's a clip. I'm wearing black, like all black, because um, it seems right because they kill democracy in El Salvador with the reelection that is not in the constitution, it's unconstitutional. The problem is that at some point, everything is going to implode and then, or explode in the country, and that is going to result in migration. Um, we already see that with Venezuela, uh, with Cuba, um, and for sure, this is not going to be sustainable in the long run. Like the exception state, having like 
almost three percent of the population in jail without due process and how people is like saying okay the international community is saying it's okay to do that um and the thing is like other countries in the western hemisphere are adopting these measures um in ecuador they try to do the same in honduras they try to do the same so yeah and in his speech for example he attacked international communities he attacked uh non-profits he attacked um civil society organizations and journalists so that's something that we need to be afraid of um because things are going to get worse so ben we've talked about bekele a lot on the show i mean his sort of tenure is marked by these crackdowns where he just throws people in jail whether or not they're accused of anything and also his embrace of bitcoin uh and the idiots in the united states who you know sort of like took that at face value and and supported him but pretty troubling that this super authoritarian approach to policing has made bukele by far the most popular leader in in latin america in the whole hemisphere he pulls by far 80 percent he's legit popular um and look, I, you know, we are me like, you know, we could be too glib about the guy because the crypto stuff and the hat backwards kind of. But but he actually had like like Tucker, he has like an approach. Right. And and the approach is just autocracy and strongman politics and lock yeah. people up. And 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 clearly that approach is is working politically for him. And it's working substantively in the sense that violence is way down. Actually, El Salvadorian uh, migration to the U.S. border is way down. It's mm-hmm. like the only country where you've seen a huge drop. But I actually think Luis uh, in the clip puts his finger on it. I, I just think that's a sugar high. You know, like when you bottle things up like this and you put 3% of the country in prison and you just, you know, dismantle democracy, the bill is going to come due, you yeah. know? Yeah. And if, if, yeah, if I was an ordinary Salvadorian right now, I might be like, well, things are better. Like this guy, you know, the gangs aren't in charge anymore. Uh, it's safer on the streets. But then you look up in five years and you've got like a corrupt despot right. and he's, you know, the, you know, there's some version of the gangs back. Throwing and, your totally innocent cousin and, and, in jail. And, and, yeah, and, and you have yeah. no recourse anymore because the democracy has gone. So yeah. you can't vote yeah. him out. And that's what's so scary about these moments is, yes, people, you know, people want to say, well, he is democratically the most popular guy. Well, he just changed the Constitution basically to let himself stay in power. And if you think that the first thing he's going to do now is not to further dismantle democracy, you don't pay attention to these things. And and again, I think Luis, what's going to need to happen is some kind of long-term building of some alternative here because, yeah, like, I don't know, I, I could be proven wrong, but I just have a feeling that this approach in the long run and in the long run might be a few years, you know, suddenly what felt really good for a couple of years, you look up and you're like, oh, fuck. You yeah, know? strong men yeah. don't always uh, wear well over time. Yeah. Big picture, Ben. Looking forward, 2024 is going to be a big test for the future of democracy all over the world, including the United States. Uh, a couple races and, and data points that we're watching. So first, there were some polls recently out of Europe that are forecasting uh, far-right parties are going to gain a number of seats during the EU elections in June. That is troubling. And, and the, that rise in these far-right parties is going to come uh, with the center-left parties taking a big hit. Um, second, Pakistan is holding an election on February 8th, but it is shaping up to be anything but free and fair. So former Prime Minister Imran Khan has been sentenced to 10 years in prison for allegedly leaking state secrets. A lot of people think that sentence is just a pretext for the Pakistani military to crack down on Khan and put restrictions on his political party, like removing their logo from the ballots, etc. There's all kinds of shit happening. 
And then third, in Senegal, President Macky Sall signed a decree postponing their election. It was supposed to be on February 25th, uh, but it's been pushed. The government is also disqualifying opposition candidates and restricted internet access on mobile phones after protesters took to the streets. So, Ben, we're talking about very different countries, regions of the world here, uh, systems of government in some cases. But the common theme is a threat to democracy and democratic norms and a trajectory that does not feel very good. Yeah, the year of elections is, is not off to yeah, like a roaring start for democracy. Great. I mean, I think you're right to point out that these places are different, and we're right to put this in the same segment, because what is so troubling is countries as different as El Salvador and Senegal and Pakistan are all showing that they're kind of part of this trend of essentially extrajudicial approaches to politics, right? Exactly, Bukele yeah. changes the law, lets himself stay in office. The Pakistani military, whomever is like, you know, orchestrating Imran Khan's removal from the scene to kind of pick the leader however they want. And then Mackie Saul, like he was the guy that he had surprised people in a good way by saying he wasn't right. run for this third term. Everybody's happy about that. I think we welcome that on this show. And actually, like weirdly, like his party was already primed to kind of win. So so it's just ambiguous, like why he's doing this. And and again, keep in mind, this is in, in West Africa. ECOWAS is the regional group of countries that includes all these coup states and mm-hmm. it, Senegal's usually the more, you know, uh, advanced, uh, committed to democracy in the neighborhood. So I, I, it does just tell you where the pendulum's going and it's not going in the direction of the small D Democrats. You know? Not great. Yeah. Not great. Uh, but let's turn to Northern Ireland where it was historic yes, weekend. So for the first time in a uh, hundred years, the top job of first minister is going to be held by a nationalist member of the Sinn Féin party, Michelle O'Neill. Uh, Sinn Féin has historic ties to the IRA, the former extremist group. Uh, well, I guess still yeah. an extremist group. But this is a, you know, so it's a huge moment for them in their evolution into politics from something else. Recent polls across Ireland suggest a majority of people still do not support unification. But the very fact that O'Neill was appointed to the position would have been unthinkable until recent years. This once fringe political wing of the IRA won the popular vote in 2020. And they've gained momentum among young people in particular by supporting causes like housing and representing a shift away from the status quo. Here's a clip from O'Neill's appointment. I am honoured to stand here as First Minister. We mark a moment of equality and a moment of progress, a new opportunity to work and to grow together. Confident in that wherever we come from, whatever our aspirations are, we can and we must build our future together. So, Ben, what do you think this means for the, the future in Northern Ireland? First of all, I could listen to all day. Any, you know, can we I get know. some more Irish clips on the show? Like I, any Irish voice. It's my anybody, fault. You know? That clip started um, 60 seconds. I yeah. cut it down for time, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I wish I had. Um, also, Michelle O'Neill, not to be confused with Michael, Michael O'Neill, very yeah, good, former good, good of mine. The pod. Yeah. Um, Look, it's a huge deal. I mean, to have someone, you know, uh, Sinn Féin, obviously legacy IRA, you know, they, they go on this political journey to the Good Friday Accords uh, and to have her standing up there. Um, and talking about, I mean, number one, the fact that someone from Sinn Féin is giving a message like that, like, I want to govern for everybody. And, and I'm sure, you know, maybe there are people on the other team that don't believe that. Right. But but just just the fact that that's the kind of political orientation, I think, is, is important and powerful. And it's, look, if you're going to have a Good Friday Accord and you're going to have uh, power sharing, you're going to have to have a Sinn Féin leader at some point, you know, uh, or else what is it really? It's not really power sharing. And And, and at the same time, the fact that she's trying to identify this agenda that, you know, whether you're Catholic or Protestant or uh, Republican, you know, uni- unification person or, or not, you care about housing, you care about education, you care about the economy, that, that's smart. 
I do think that this question lurks in the backdrop. This is also post-Brexit, right? Mm-hmm. And so part of the reason that Sinn Féin won this election is because of the post-Brexit politics of Northern Ireland. And, you know, some of the Sinn Féin has a presence in the Irish parliament, too. And some of them are like, well, this is great. We can finally see unification on the horizon. I do think that at some point, and I'm not taking a position on this, I swear to God. Come on. Um, I'm just saying at some point in the not too distant future, I don't think there's going to be, you know, necessarily, this this will be an issue. Like this is going to, you know, God forbid, hopefully not a violent one. But, right. but like I do think, you know, at some point Brexit, you know, Brexit made this more of an issue because people in Northern Ireland, a lot of them want to be in the EU, you know. And so I don't think that's the headline of what's happening here, but but it is in the backdrop. Yeah. To the extent the Good Friday Agreement kind of healed the wound, it was pretty recently. <laughs> We're talking yeah, about the yeah. 90s. Yeah, you know, this yeah. isn't like ancient history. Yeah. So a uh, pretty remarkable uh, evolution. Interesting um, too that she took the, she actually in that same talk, I think, called for a ceasefire and express solidarity to the Palestinians. Yeah. It reminds you that there's this kind of solidarity, occupation. B- b- you know, ANC, yeah. IRA, yep. you know, it was interesting callback to that that era. Yeah. And, you know, Ben, look, I know the Irish aren't the biggest fans of the monarchy <laughs> no. as a general matter. Good, good, but Great transition. Thank you. But I suspect uh, many of them were still saddened to hear the news that King Charles has been diagnosed. I'm not with sure that they were. <laughs> some type of yeah. cancer. Well, come on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess he was being treated for an enlarged prostate when doctors discovered some cancer elsewhere in his body. We don't know exactly what's going on. But to, to King Charles's credit, he went public with this news in an effort to encourage others to get screenings in the past royal health news has kind of stayed within the palace and not necessarily been public. So like, good on him for going public yeah. with this. Uh, you don't have to be a monarch fan to know that it's actually a good thing if you have to have a monarch to have one who's like really, really interested in combating climate change, for example, which King Charles is. So I think, you know, he can be a force for good if he wants to be. I'm not saying I'm like a pro-monarchy guy in Charles any way. Charles over here, yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. I mean, like he, like there's a lot, the monarchy we can talk about and Charles has, you know, had some hiccups along the way. There's, a, you know, but, um, <laughs> hiccups. but as, as a, as a public figure, like he's embraced climate change. He's embraced kind of mental health. He's embracing yeah. kind of health transparency here. That's good. And frankly, it's just a human like seriously, like, you know, Kate, you know, just had some nasty health bout, you know, right. she was hospitalized for a while. Now, Charles, it is, you know, it's been a rough year for the Royals. I mean, Rupture I, I, I genuinely mean that. I mean, Queen Elizabeth dying and now all these health issues. I, I saw world correspondent of me saw that uh, Harry is going to see his Flying father. Flying back to see yeah. dad. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe we'll get a reconciliation. Which honestly makes me a little worried about what the prognosis is, right? If you like jump on a plane and immediately yeah. fly home, that, that makes you worry it's kind of serious. That's true, actually. And, and that, like, yeah, I, I, I really hope that's not the case. And, and um, um, I was going to say something about another season of The Crown, but now I realize that that's probably in poor taste. Yeah, you do, you. Yeah. Uh, last segment, we're going to do a little something called Conservative Politicians Are Weird. So this is according to a report in the Sunday Times, Ben, uh, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak fasts for 36 hours at the start of every single week. He only drinks water, tea, or black coffee from 5 p.m. on Sunday to 5 a.m. on Tuesday. Uh, obviously, when you are starving, your body <laughs> breaks down fat and not energy or carbohydrates. Uh, some people think this diet helps you live longer, but that science is like based on starving mice and shit. So I don't know. All, all I know is that like, first of all, Rishi Sunak, like you're kind of a beanpole. So I don't know that you need to be starving yourself for yeah. you know 36 hours. But also if I fasted for 16 hours, let alone 36, I would be in the worst mood imaginable. I can't even imagine doing that. Well, you know, you, you know, he should have some of that like, uh, what, what did we used to, 
endorse the the athletic greens. Can, yeah. Can you have that? I don't, as, I don't know. That sounds like you're cheating. You that is part of. I guess that's cheating. It's not tea. I, I I'd add to the re, weird Rishi Sunak uh, and British Tories segment too. That do you see the like thousand pound bet that uh, Piers Morgan uh, made yeah. with him about whether any planes would go to Rwanda? Like it was very odd to see like a prime minister like shaking hands to bet Piers Morgan a thousand pounds about sending people to Rwanda. Was it Mitt Romney who bet somebody like $10,000? <laughs> you try to bet someone $10,000 on stage during a debate. Yeah, he tried to yeah, bet yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. that idiot, Rick Perry. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, when you're a fucking- When you're a rich dude. Rich, yeah, exactly. That, touch, that's right. Like half a billionaire. It, yeah, yeah. Don't bet someone a thousand pounds. If you are Rishi Sunak, who's half a billionaire and who presides over a party that is fucking destroyed the NHS national service through austerity. Maybe you don't just like drop a thousand pound bets on whether you can send some migrants on a plane to Rwanda. Yeah, you can you send know? some like some destitute people yeah. fleeing persecution, yeah. whether you can send them to a country they've never been to, never heard of, yeah. don't speak the language and don't own it. Hey, I, I bet you a thousand dollars I can torture these people before <laughs> this, the this election. Is, this is the kind of thing that I see and I kind of like, it'd be fun to be on the labor campaign. Oh my God, you know? I would like, just destroy Because he's just, he's such a big, easy, skinny target, but yeah, like, a, a it's a big target, you know, like. Yeah, so speak, sticking with this theme, Ben, uh, former British Prime Minister Liz Truss is speaking at CPAC this year. So for those who don't know, CPAC stands for the Conservative Political Action Conference. It is this far-right conference that Republicans host. It was once like kind of fringe and wacky, kind yeah. of like the bar scene from Star Wars, yeah, the Republican Party. showing up or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now it's like yeah. MAGA-centrist, right? It's just kind of like the Trump show. I'm kind of interested to see how this goes because I'm not sure that these little like culture war freaks want to hear from a boring loser who was prime minister for 50 days before being bounced out of office. Like, I don't know. That's not like the kind of leadership they're looking for down at CPAC. Yeah. Why is she? What, I guess she wanted to cut taxes a lot. So they like her. I, I mean, I, I just don't understand. Like, what is the appeal when you're when you're in the CPAC meeting? OK, let's put ourselves in the whatever brainstorm, you know, and you're going through all the list of potential speakers. And mm -hmm. it, it's kind of like uh, the Dr. Evil headquarters yeah, and yeah. Austin Powers. Or, you're like, all right, we got Dan or, Bongino. Or, or, or deep callback, like the naked gun opening, you know? Okay, yeah. Like, but there, yeah, you got a wall <laughs> with all the potential speakers. And you got, we got Orban over here. And Don Jr. Maybe Bukele make an appearance if we ask him. And is there some, like, like right-wing, like, RSS, like, Hindu nationalist, do we want to come speak or something? Like, like you have all these people to choose from. Yeah. Ben Gavir, Ben who, Gavir. Who was that neo-Nazi meeting in Eastern Germany that caused all that trouble? We'll yeah, get one of them. yeah, get one of them. Like, uh, you, you know, why would you basically be like, yeah, actually the person we want is Liz Truss. Liz Truss. You know? And yeah, maybe a decade ago, you're like, oh, there's some prestige from a former prime minister. But like, you got Trump. Yeah. You got Orban. I'm sure you got Nigel Farage. I'm sure he's going to be there. Bolsonaro he, will probably yeah. be there. Oh, Bolsonaro will be there, like spreading COVID, you know. I mean, the, the serious part of this is there is this just like connective tissue between all these like sort of fringe, super right wing nationalists, usually racist leaders. I mean, Liz Truss, yeah. I'm not saying that she was specifically racist. I've talked about some of the others at CPAC. But yeah, she was just kind of ridiculous. She's just an idiot. Yeah, 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 yeah she yeah, just put yeah, forward yeah, a tax plan yeah, and it tanked the entire yeah, economy. That almost broke the Bank of England after like, like hundreds wild, of years. Yeah. Wild story. But yeah, I mean, I guess she's been spotted in Congress, I think, having meetings with uh, Tea Party types. I, 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 I think the types. extreme tax cut caucus like, likes her because she was willing to break the global economy to, to cut taxes, I guess. I don't know. 
bizarre. Very strange. Um, all right. Well, that's enough of, uh, you know, weirdo conservative Tories. But uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear from Alex Ward. He's a writer for Politico and the author of the new book, The Internationalists, which is about President Biden's first two years in office and his foreign policies. Stick around for that. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Alex Ward is a writer for Politico and the author of the new book, The Internationalists, which chronicles the first two years of President Biden's foreign policy and administration. Uh, Alex, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tommy. I need to first admit that you do an excellent uh, national security newsletter for Politico. Uh, how often does it come out again? I just I read it every time. But yeah, it's Wednesday through Friday, every, you know, 4 p.m. Eastern. So it's a it's a big project that we do every day. And nothing is more helpful for me in uh, producing the show and the team here. So thank you for that. Uh, but let's talk about the book. So you finished this deep dive into President Biden's foreign policy uh, in the first two years of the administration. Was there anything you learned reporting out the book that surprised you or was different from, you know, things you'd taken away from just sort of day-to-day reporting those first couple of years. And at the risk of asking a question that used to drive me insane when I was a spokesperson in government, did you come away feeling like there was a Biden doctrine uh, when it comes to foreign policy? Uh, I think what surprised me most is that there was a lot of Trumpism that was brought in uh, to a Biden foreign policy, right? Because Biden, you know, three years old when World War II ended, he is an avatar for the traditional democratic foreign policy world, liberal international order, defensive democracy, that kind of thing. And Trump wins in 2016 and the team around him, mostly Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, go, wait a minute. 
Trump did not necessarily win on his foreign policy views, but he didn't lose on them either. That there is mm-hmm. clearly something in that thinking and in the stuff that he was promoting that the traditional foreign policy folks on the on the Democratic side and the Republican side had not internalized and not considered. And so thanks to to Sullivan and others, um, Ben, we should note, <laughs> um, and his work. Ben Rose, national, yeah. Yep, Ben Rose, the work in national security action helped develop this framework. And even though, especially Ben may not like my saying that a bit of Trumpism got in, let's say a bit of focus on the domestic front, a bit of uh, populism got in and thinking about, okay, you can still defend democracy, you can still uphold the international order, but maybe it needs a reframing. Maybe it needs a bit of renewing in order to matter to people, which is why the moniker you constantly hear from Team Biden is a foreign policy for the middle class. Now, is that the doctrine? I don't think it is. Um, I would say the doctrine is more along the lines of, the absolute prioritization of d- defense of the li- liberal international order of democracies and and democracy uh, at home and abroad, but with the twist of reframing it so it can last and not crack under the populist pressure that Trump and others ha- have been putting on it. I want to talk more about that the fight for democracy in, in some of the you know those bigger picture themes here, but. Some of the chapters that really were like searing for me to read were about the Afghanistan withdrawal and those last few weeks and days and just how horrifying it was, most of all, obviously, for the people of Afghanistan. But also, this was clearly a scarring experience for the administration officials involved in Afghanistan policy or in the White House generally. How do you think that period of time and that outcome impacted Biden's decision making going forward? Uh, quite significantly. I mean, look, we should note that Biden, in the moment of dis- dis- deciding to withdraw through now, stands by the decision, despite you know mm-hmm. all the chaos around it and the fact that 13 service members were killed in the in the uh, terrorist attack outside of Kabul's airport. But what I think happened is that Team Biden, more than Biden himself, were like, "Wait a minute, we got kind of flat-footed here. Yes, we made a decision, but look at how quickly the Taliban stormed to power." Look at how chaotic this withdrawal turned out to be. Look at how it's, you know, look at the optics of it. Even if you can still agree with the strategic decision overall, maybe tactically it led to some uh, problems. So there was a sense within Team Biden to kind of go, okay, well, we need to prove ourselves again. And we need to internalize a lot of these things that we learned uh, or or rather unlearned uh, from the Afghanistan situation and apply it to some future uh, crisis. Unfortunately, uh, in, in the in world politics, that's when Putin was basically starting to think about taking Ukraine. And so they if there was a lick the wounds moment, it didn't last long because they had to quickly go, OK, well, where, what did we mess up in terms of like our processes and thinking and how can we switch that quickly to apply it to, of course, a wholly different situation, which was Russia, Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, on the decision itself, I mean, my view on Biden's decision to end the war is that it was the right one. And I also think that the responsibility for the outcome in some of the images we saw in, in you know, the horrifying images at the end, uh, the responsibility for those lie with every administration, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, Trump in particular, like cut the withdrawal deal, right? He all but shut down the processing of visas for uh, Afghans who worked with the US military, the SIV visas, which made it so hard to ramp that process back up at the end. So I, I, I get all that. And I'm like, I think you know, Biden deserves some of the blame, but certainly not all of it. And I say that as someone with humility who worked on this policy. At the same time, you know, I did feel like in those final weeks, the administration's 
response to questions about the withdrawal were very defensive. They primarily focused on this being the largest you know, airlift of people in history and not on the fact that it wasn't necessarily all the people we wanted to get out who were getting out, right? Like a lot of like SIV visa holders were left behind. Did that kind of defensive crouch change over time as you revisited this in your reporting and went back to the same people like six months or a year later to talk about that time? No. I mean, look, they, they gave me the kind of the spiel you did, which is, look, Alex, you can hold two thoughts in your head. This is the most impressive logistical, you know, uh, moment, arguably in, in, in modern, uh, you know, military history uh, in terms of airlifting all these people out. What a, what a coordinated feat this was, considering all the chaos that was surrounding Kabul and Afghanistan. And also, yes, we can recognize that there was humanitarian tragedy, but they would say, after 20 years of war, what did you expect? Like, did you expect this Mm -hmm. to go cleanly? And I think those are genuinely two fair arguments. What I would say, though, and what I try to write out in the book, is that there was a very important baked-in assumption in the decision to withdraw. And that was that it would take 18 to 24 months for the Taliban to take Kabul and effectively control all of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I don't want to say the administration slow-walked moves on SIVs or getting folks out. Uh, and in fact, it's hard to say that because the military was like, if you're getting us out, speed is safety. We're, we're moving. Right. Uh, you know, the White House was sort of taken aback by how quickly that military withdrawal took. But anyway, to the to the main point, 18 to 24 months was what the, how much time they basically thought they had to produce as orderly an exit as possible. The fact that it crashed down on them so quickly, they had to improvise. They improvised, I think you can say, relatively well ba- based on the the airlift and all that. But there's no question. That that improvisation and that forced upon them led to a, cha- a chaotic withdrawal process where those who were actually in Kabul having to make decisions on like life or death decisions, quite literally, you know, had to do it on the fly, that you saw the death of the service members uh, and you saw just the general humanitarian devastation outside the airport. So was there going to be an orderly and good, quote unquote, withdrawal of Afghanistan? No. Did it have to be as bad? No, I don't think so either. Yeah, I think if you gave President Biden truth serum and said, knowing what you know now, would you have pushed to withdrawal four or five, six months to guess all, get all the SIVs out? I'm sure you'd say yes. Um, the, the very hard thing, I think, for for you, for writing a book like this in the middle of a, of a term is that events change. And in this case, you know, you finished the book before the October 7th attacks and before things started to go pretty badly in Ukraine. Do those events and changes kind of make you rethink anything you wrote? Or how has that, you know, sort of impacted your view of the Biden foreign policy since? Yeah, whenever the paper book comes out, I'm going to have to probably write a new uh, epilogue. Uh, <laughs> forward, yeah. yeah for forward or something, yeah. Um, look, I mean, I think it's true that when the time I finished writing the book, which was roughly the February of last year, things were looking really up, right? I mean, you had um, – U- Ukraine was defended. Uh, these side issues, that the Biden administration would put it, which at the time would have been the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, those were still quiet. I mean, just to, just even before October 7th, you had Jake Sullivan say, you know, things are quiet in the Middle East. Like, that's how they were thinking about it. That's how they were feeling. And so there was a bit of optimism, like, okay, we got through this period. The West has stood up. Here we go. It hasn't gone uh, as well. Of course, the counteroffensive shortly afterward did not work as planned. Uh, so, you know, Biden's uh, sort of like, campaign rally for NATO in Eastern Europe, you know, sort of did not go uh, as hoped in in Warsaw and, of course, later in uh, NATO in Lithuania. And then, you know, uh, Israel-Hamas pops up and you have one of the core assumptions of of Bidenism or a Biden doctrine, which was we can put these not unimportant but 
in terms of the the main things they care about, side issues, uh, we can keep them quiet throughout so we can focus on the core things. That assumption proved relatively untrue, of course, because now it's dominating the entire agenda and threatening, uh, you know, to uh, destabilize quite a bit. Now, you hear Team Biden now say, well, we've always cared about the Israeli-Palestinian issue. This was something that we were working on throughout, you know, as part of Abraham Accords, etc. I think you kind of have to call BS on that a bit. There's no question that they cared about it in the months leading up to October 7th as they were doing the Israeli-Saudi normalization deal, right? Part of that deal Mm -hmm. had to be not concessions, but some improvements for the Palestinian cause. Uh, But that... Again, only a couple months before October 7th. For the majority of the time of this administration, that's, this was a totally back burner issue. Yeah, I mean, it just shows any. You can go into a, a presidency with a doctrine or an idea for what you want to do, but events are always going to happen and overtake those things. The book made me think a lot about my time in government because you really got into the, into the details of what the NSC does. And when I was in government, there's so much focus on inputs, basically like things we're doing versus outcomes. What I mean by that is like you total up the number of meetings you had on an issue or diplomatic touches with you know foreign counterparts about something. And you use those as evidence that we're on top of things, but not necessarily the outcomes themselves, right? For an example would be the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Biden administration, they released intelligence. There were these like tiger team meetings to plan for what might happen. There's lots of coordination among allies. All of that made it a lot easier to respond quickly once the invasion happened, but it didn't prevent it. Um, how do you think you judge like the efficacy of an administration when you're looking at the inputs versus the outcomes, while also knowing that obviously like the U.S. can't control all events around the world? We don't get to tell Vladimir Putin what to do, for example. Yeah, one of the quotes that I most remember in doing this book, and I, I should have it committed to memory, but paraphrasing was effectively this, which was, we did this about as perfectly as we could do it, and we still failed. I remember that, yeah. So, and I'm when, you know, the person I talked to told me that, I was like, man, that must just suck. Like, you, think, you did about as, I, and I would give the administration credit, I think they did about as well as any administration could do in the in an attempt to prevent something like this. They, they were even open to diplomatic negotiations with Putin over some sacred cows, including NATO enlargement or Ukraine's position in moving further westward. Uh, there were gen, genuine conversations and tough conversations uh, with European allies, with Zelensky himself, who we should re- we must remember was pretty brutal with with the U.S. and and critical for saying you guys are out yeah. of control. This is not going to happen. You don't know the Russians like we do. So when you consider the fact that the administration helped effectively warned the world that this was happening, warned Ukraine that this was happening, set up a sanctions regime, convinced some skeptical Europeans to go pretty hard on Europe, uh, that they were willing to talk with Russia and make some sort of deal, but basically caught trying because no one expected Putin to, to actually make a move. But regardless, they got everything in train, they got everything prepared, they got the intelligence, they they warned the world, they changed an intelligence practice to declassify information and explain what was going on. I mean, it was a pretty good uh, response that unfor- you know, unfortunately did not lead to its, uh, to its intended goal. Now, there are the critics who would say, well, the big mistake Team Biden did was not sanction Russia early or send weapons early. That would have been a deterrent. Of course, the Biden administration's plan was, well, that... If you do the thing, then you're no longer deterring. Then Russia's already punished and they're going to do mm-hmm. it anyway. We can't change the past. We don't know if that would have worked. Uh, but 
I think outside of that, knowing what we know, I've talked to no one really that thinks that it was a bad response. It's just if Putin's going to do it, Putin's going to do it. Yeah, I find it very hard to believe that like some sanctions or sending a thousand javelin missiles in advance of the invasion would have deterred Putin when he wanted to take Ukraine. It was interesting remembering how um, challenging the U.S.-Ukraine relation was, particularly, you know, relations between uh, Zelensky and Biden in advance of the invasion, how much the administration was trying to convince Zelensky that his country was about to be invaded. And he just wouldn't believe them either he uh, either he genuinely didn't believe them or he just didn't want to believe them I, I can't really tell i don't know if you know but um you know that sort of period of the relationship feels like it's kind of been forgotten at this point yeah i mean if i if there's anything sort of scoopy or newsy in the book i mean i think there's a lot of bits but one of the sort of bigger thematic ones is we all knew that the u.s ukraine relationship was tense i don't think we knew it was this bad and that's what the book tries to chronicle i mean biden and Zelensky were in yelling matches at some points i mean it yeah. was really really bad and there was a moment where biden was basically telling Zelensky, like defend your city defend your country mobilize what are you doing and i think what i've you know, I was not able to talk to many Ukrainians for this book. That's one of my my regrets. But what I the, the folks I did talk to and those who are close to the Ukrainians, they were it's not that there was necessarily a political ploy. There was, of course, a political element to not saying we're about to get invaded because it's bad for the economy and all that. But there really was a sense that you Americans, your intelligence about war is constantly wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we know the Russians better than you do. And they wouldn't do this. They've already invaded us. They're not going to go all out. That would be stupid. And so for Biden and, of course, other officials to come out and say, here's intelligence, here's what the Russians are planning, you know, we're warning the world, Ukraine, be careful, you know, Putin, be careful. Zelensky's like, stop doing that. Stop yeah. doing it. And it was um, it was rancorous. And I should say nothing sharpens the mind more than an invasion, because the moment Russia got in, Zelensky was like, all right, send me weapons, send me money. Like, what can we do? This is happening. And so, you know, he, of course, his tune changed and he's led a, a phenomenal defense of, of his nation. But in the walk up, he was about as skeptical as anybody that it was going to happen. Yeah. And I guess in his defense, I mean, you look at the intelligence around the Iraq war, you look at the uh, intelligence around the Afghan withdrawal. It's understandable that he might question uh, the products at that point. But, you know, that said, uh, the intelligence was like 100,000 troops on the border. So it was a little more obvious uh, that, that he was planning an invasion of some sort. Last question for you. When I was in government, there were lots of great people I worked with, well-meaning people who would like earnestly, but I think a little performatively say, you know, like politics has no place in the situation room, right? Which of course is like patently ridiculous. The only reason we all were allowed in that room is because Barack Obama was elected president. So politics is inextricably linked to everything you do, foreign policy including. I was wondering what you or the folks you talked to in the Biden administration, uh, how they feel about how politics is impacting their ability to do the things they want to do these days. Because you know, the book ends like America is ready for renewal. The world was there to remake. There are at least two more years to get it done. Early on, Republicans were playing ball on some of those renewal efforts. Now they are absolutely not, including you know aid for Ukraine, other things that were seen as bipartisan in the past. So I'm wondering how like, you know, politics is now in the minds of someone like a Jake Sullivan who's trying to run the foreign policy apparatus. Yeah, I can't say I spoke to them directly on this question, but I, I have an informed guess, which was, you know, in the first year or two, the assumption was if we connect politics to foreign policy, because, again, 
implicit in foreign policy for the middle class is you are doing something for the American people, ergo, it will be popular. So there's no question there's a domestic political part here. So I think they felt that in the first two years or so, if there was success in Ukraine, if, you know, we got Afghanistan and things were all right, if we righted the relationship with China, if we focused on climate change and that kind of thing, that eventually the people would go, our lives are better. America's in this better place. And then there would be, let's say, more popularity or more support for Biden foreign policy because it could be working. And one could argue mm-hmm. that roughly around the time I stopped writing this book, they had that moment. They kind of were there. I mean, granted, politics are what they are. There will always be critics among Republicans. And I'm not saying it's a perfect foreign policy by any means. But I think that was the level of optimism that they felt and that I was picking up on when I tried to write it. Now, I don't think anyone's there. And of course, at the moment that we're, we're chatting, it looks like this you know border deal Ukraine thing is, is dumb. Right. So we're now in the the grind moment, the 2024 election moment. And what's fascinating to me is, you know, as Biden and likely Trump comes up, Biden was really planning to go on the strength of his foreign policy. And look what we did. Look how we, we, we saved America after what Trump did to us in the world. That's their thinking. And now it's not so clear he has that advantage. And now that that, that debate has now turned into like visions of the world and what way America should go, and it's turned into who won't start World War III. Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, foreign policy has turned into um, a challenging position for Biden vis-a-vis Trump, because the things that you know actually break through in the press are events like the Afghanistan withdrawal, and people have a negative opinion of those. But I also think that there was an NBC poll the other day they talked about, you know, who is better, Trump or Biden, on improving America's standing in the world. And Trump was up 11 points, right? You know, that might just be like when your approval is underwater, your approval is underwater across a whole host of issues. But it doesn't make it feel like, you know, foreign policy is a real wind at their back at the moment, in particular with Gaza and the way, what it's doing to the Democratic Party. Yeah, if I, if I recall, and I don't have polls in front of me, but if I recall that, you know, Biden had stronger numbers on that aspect in general, not necessarily against Trump, but just in yeah, general, yeah. you know, far before um, Israel, Hamas. So it's, you know, this is very much impacting him. And I should note, you know, Biden's numbers sunk pretty strongly around the Afghanistan withdrawal. So it's yeah. it's one of those things, there's a maxim in foreign policy that, you know, foreign policy can't make a presidency, but it can break one. Right. And in this case, you know, I... You could argue that that Biden did a lot of great things. Is the liberal international order more secure? You could make that case. Is is West more rallied together and united? You could make that case. Um, has climate change been prioritized as an issue? Slightly, but you can make that case. Uh, but when most people think of Biden's foreign policy, my guess is they go Afghanistan withdrawal and Israel Hamas, and those aren't good stories to tell. Yeah. The good news is there's some time to, to fix that and to right the ship there. But yeah, at the moment, I think it's um, a bit of a nadir. But uh, Alex, thank you so much for talking with me. The book is The Internationalists. Everyone should go pick it up now. It's coming out, what, a couple days? About February a week? 20th, yeah. Excellent. Well, everyone should check it out and uh, and check out you know all the writing you're doing over Politico because you guys do great work. And uh, thanks for helping us produce the show. Thanks for having me, Tommy. I'll, I'll look forward to my residual checks. <laughs> yeah, here you go. I want my cut. Just kidding. <laughs> Thanks again to Alex Gore for joining the show. And uh, that's all I got. Thanks to Liz Truss. Thanks to Liz and uh, Rishi. Rishi Sunak's always hanging out in Santa Monica. So I'm surprised we haven't seen him. I'm going to miss Rishi Sunak when he's defeated because like, yeah. he's, he's actually turned out to be good content. He will know? probably end up living out here and he will probably at some point through an intermediary ask you for a meeting. And his life will be really good.
You know, I oh, mean, yeah. uh, the thing about Rishi is that, I, you know, he'll be rich guy. Like, he's he's a smart guy. Like, he'll probably yeah. get into, like, tech or something and make gobs of money. And, Tons of cash. Yeah, yeah. He'll probably be on this podcast, actually. He'll be a VC. We, we had David Cameron on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, we, we should come on. You who, know? who kind of is on the world stage now looking like the prime minister, and it's got to piss Sunak off. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, not, yeah, that's yeah. not going Cause, on. Cause, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I, yeah. He floated that they were going to recognize Palestinian uh, state, Palestinian state yeah. at the UN and then he could walk it back. Yeah, and, the Cameron Declaration. Yeah, yeah. Tough, yeah. tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the Balfour. Uh, okay, that's enough for us. Uh, talk to you next week. If you want to get ad-free episodes, exclusive content, and more, consider joining our Friends of the Pod subscription community at crooked.com slash friends. Don't forget to follow Crooked Media on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter for more original content, host takeovers, and other community events. Plus, find Pod Save the World on YouTube for access to full episodes, bonus content, and more. And if you're as opinionated as us, consider dropping a review. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Reed Cherlin. Our producer is Alona Minkowski, and associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. Mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Audio support by Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Our studio technician is David Tolls. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Phoebe Bradford, who upload our episodes and videos to youtube.com slash podsavetheworld. On Chasing Life, CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, helps you create meaningful change in your life and gives you the real strategies to optimize your health. This season, Chasing Life is taking on the topic of weight loss. New episodes of Chasing Life come out every Tuesday. Listen to Chasing Life with Dr. Sanjay Gupta from CNN Audio, wherever you get your podcasts. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.